From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. For the last year plus, we've been doing it virtually. Virtual has its downside, but it means we get the whole team in here, and we do have the whole team in here today. Eric Bradlow is here, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, and this is Kate Massey. Going to roll into the first quarter straight away talking COVID-19. We've just been kicking it around about COVID-19 in the first quarter. Kind of informal. Bunch of rookies in here talking about things they don't really know anything about. We decided we'd change it up today. We'll talk to a real expert. And so we have a guest in our first half hour today. Delighted to welcome Dr. Lauren Ansel Myers in. She is the Cooley Centennial Professor of Integrative Biology and Statistics and Data Sciences at UT Austin. She's also external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. She's trained as a mathematical biologist. She did that at a couple of places you might've heard of, Harvard and Stanford. And she has been at the cutting edge of understanding outbreak detection, forecasting and control for a long time. And so she's been right in the right place as we've been trying to figure out COVID-19 over the last year. Professor Myers, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you. Thanks, it's great to be here, Kate. How is your state of mind right now? What's your workload now and like maybe the last month versus a year ago? What's it like being Dr. Myers now versus this time, 2020? So this time, 2020, I was not sleeping. I was hardly eating, certainly not getting out for a walk. This time, 2020, where we march, we were working around the clock responding to almost daily requests from White House Coronavirus Task Force, CDC, State of Texas, the city of Austin, Texas, where where I live, just asking us for basic analyses to help figure out what this threat was made of, uh, where it was going to be going in the coming weeks, coming months, and and what we could do to use our sort of limited resources and potentially really costly measures uh, to slow the spread and save lives. Mm -hmm. When you look back at that time, how do you you judge your performance, not just your performance, the community's performance at such an incredibly difficult and uncertain time? Well, I, I think that the, the scientists and the modelers really stepped up. I mean, we weren't trained to do modeling in real time on the front line. We, we were really trained to be scientists and take a long time in building and validating models and using mm-hmm. them just to kind of investigate how do diseases spread, where are they going to emerge? And so we weren't trained for this, but I, you know, so many of my colleagues all around the country and all around the world really stepped up um, and, and brought their talents um, and training, uh, you know, to the plate to help, to help uh, just navigate the really uncertain situation. When did you actually see it coming? You guys stepped up, but I think you guys were stepping up far before we, we realized you were stepping up. When we, we got a hint, I don't know, January, February. When, when did it hit you? When did you know this was going to be as much of a mess as it was? So when we first heard about this anomalous virus spreading in Wuhan, I mean, we heard about it on CNN, on the news, um, but we went to work within 24 hours. We were immediately you know, trying to get whatever data we could get our hands on out of China. One of the first things we did was um, get our hands on some mobility data from China, so cell phone data, so we we could know we we knew we were that China was entering the Lunar New Year period, where there's massive amounts of travel, so that people can celebrate the holiday with their families. And we were concerned about what that would mean for the, the emergence and spread of the virus. So we very quickly got our hands on some uh, cell phone mobility data, so we could anticipate what that would mean for the propagation of the virus. So that was, and the first hint was even before the Wuhan lockdown on on January 23rd. 
we had already projected that the virus had probably landed in at least 100 other cities in, in China. We had already you know, estimated that it was spreading really quickly in Wuhan. In fact, by that lockdown, China reported 425 cases. And our first model estimated that there probably had been about 13,000 cases in that same time period. Oh, my. OK. Yeah. You're, you're saying you're saying we and I'm curious how you think about that. It's part of it. You may be the, the broader community. Part of it might be your lab. Part of it might be the, the modeling consortium at UT. You're the executive director of UT's COVID modeling consortium. How has that collaboration unfolded and how unusual has that kind of collaboration been for your community? Yeah. You might even say, like, what, what specifically is the UT? I mean, I've been looking at UT modeling consortium data for a year now. I don't even know exactly what it is. Yeah. So the UT modeling consortium is really like my lab on steroids, in a sense. <laughs> so I, you know, when, when COVID hit, um, I had, I think, uh, a postdoc and four or five grad students, and we were doing our thing, modeling diseases. In fact, we were in the middle of working on a project that was a contract for the CDC to build models to prepare for the next pandemic. So we were in the middle of this when COVID hit, and and suddenly we realized we you know needed to be working around the clock. We needed to be working with collaborators that we had kind of built relationships with over decades. And so, thanks to the support of the university, thanks to the support of actually a generous donor who wanted to support the kind of work we were doing. We were able to very rapidly uh, hire additional researchers, reach out to colleagues from other universities, from other disciplines. And we started meeting, I think in early March, every single day, every single morning on Zoom to kind of like get our bearings, assign different analysis tasks, build our models. And ever since then, um, this group, this loosely organized group of uh, dozens of researchers, you know, still gets together on almost a daily basis and um, yeah. all sorts of modeling to support, to support the response efforts. Okay. Another element of collaboration I've been curious about is working with public officials. I, I was under the impression early on that you made some presentations to the city of Austin. And now I think that may be a regular thing that you do. But how have you found um, those kinds of officials and their interest and their, and their willingness to act on, on the kinds of analysis that you're doing? Well, it's, it's highly variable. So we have done analysis for lots of different stakeholders, including sort of national authorities all the way down to local authorities. And I will say that the city of Austin is very unique in both the level of collaboration between scientists, policymakers, that includes the county judge, which is really the seat of authority, the, the city mayor, the CEOs of all the hospital systems, We've been talking on, you know, sometimes almost a daily basis, but certainly a weekly basis from the very beginning. And this task force is really unique in looking to the scientists, looking to data, looking to science to inform almost every step they've taken along the way. And so and this, this started with an initial request to our group to do some modeling around um, the, the impact of a potential stay home order before we went into that very first stay home order in March. We did some analysis. The mayor, when they when he announced that they, we were going into this order, asked if he could use our graphs to explain to the general public why we were taking the steps that we were going to take, what the consequences would be if we, we didn't take those steps. Um, and, and then throughout it, we've been, they've, they've turned to us for lots of different kinds of analyses. Early on, we did some analyses to help them figure out how many isolation facilities they'd need to protect the population experiencing homelessness um, from, from the risks. Mm -hmm. we, have, we actually designed um, Austin's five-stage alert system, which has governed our responses ever since um, mm -hmm. the end of the stay-home order in April. And so we, we moved from 
red to yellow to uh, orange, et cetera, and back and forth, depending on the level of risk. And we, we derived very specific thresholds that the virus has followed in order to, uh, I mean, that, that the city has followed in, right. in, in order to navigate the risks. That's neat. That's neat. We're talking to Lauren Ansel-Meyer. She's a Cooley Centennial Professor of Integrative Biology and Statistics and Data Sciences at UT Austin. She's also the Executive Director of the UT COVID-19 Modeling Consortium down there, which has been on kind of the front lines of modeling and forecasting what's going to happen with this thing. You're talking about such a practical work portfolio. It feels a long way, I would have thought, from mathematical biology. We're about to get into, we, I, I'm holding my guys at bay because they want to dig into the model. We're about to dig into the models. But having a little bit more background on where you're coming from in the models might be helpful. Network epidemiology, math, mathematical biology, that feels some distant from this stuff. Can you connect the dots for us? How you, how you go from your training into where you are now, working with the city on things like this five-stage warning system? Yeah, Um so, I mean, if going way back, sort of my roots are that I, I've always loved math, you know, doing it since I was a young kid and majored in math in college. And, um, but I've also really loved problem solving and been really fascinated by diseases. And so it's sort of the confluence of all those interests and um, fast forwarding to when I was actually a postdoc. So this is after I got my PhD, which was in modeling evolutionary dynamics and, and populations. Uh, as a postdoc, I spent some time at Emory University, which is right down the road from the CDC. And some folks in CDC came down to our lab where they knew there were some mathematical modelers and asked if anyone wanted to give them a hand in building a model to help figure out how to stop the spread of silent pathogens, sort of like COVID, um, in places like nursing homes, in congregate living settings. And so I sort of signed up for the job and it was my first case of building a mathematical model to solve a real world, you know, disease mm -hmm. problem. And I, and I mm -hmm. loved it. And ever since, you know, I came to UT shortly after to start my job as a professor. And ever since then, I've really sort of uh, br bridged that sort of divide between basic science and applied public health. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. and thanks to actually a, a program that was established by the NIH over 15 years ago, it's, it's called the Midas program. The federal government has actually been funding modelers like me to not only build the basic technology, do the basic science, to be, but to basically be on call to help respond to threats like this. And we helped to respond to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Uh, we, we stepped up during Ebola and the threat of Zika, but certainly this has been unprecedented in sort of the mm -hmm. level of involvement mm -hmm. modelers. So you said early on that you weren't really trained or experienced in modeling real time. Yeah. And you've done a lot of modeling real time in the last 12 months. To open the modeling discussion, what, what, what would you say you've learned about modeling COVID-19 since you began trying to do so uh, a year ago? What, what, inevitably, you've learned a lot because, you, I mean, the best way to learn is to make forecasts and get feedback and revise your model to make better forecasts. What would you say you've learned from modeling over the last year? Um, about so, modeling. Is. Yeah, about modeling. I mean, I, I can talk specifically about the kind of models we build, and, and that is the importance of expanding our models to really understand uh, the dynamics of human behavior and the feedback between epidemiological processes and human and organizational decision-making processes. So our, our models were sort of pre-baked, uh, assuming that people would live their lives as normal. So we had these parameters in our models that were based on daily activities during normal times. And all of that had to be thrown out the window as soon as we went into our first stay home order. And so mm -hmm. what we've learned is that our, our models are not sufficient to handle the complexity of, of the response to pandemics and, and how mm -hmm. things have unfolded. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yeah, so Professor Myers, I wanted to ask you, um, in my home field of marketing, although I'm a statistician as well, um, we have both what we call macro level and micro level diffusion models. Macro level models might be you're modeling the aggregate diffusion of, in our case, maybe a product selling through the population, but it's a diffusion model. We also use agent-based models, which are micro level models, literally, if you'd like, people interacting with people based on network structures. Which of those two or neither of those two most reflects, let's call it state of the art in the work that you're doing now? Yeah, it's it's really all of the above. So uh, my own lab, but also just the field in general, we build lots of different kinds of models and we typically try to uh, tailor the mathematical approach to sort of the complexity of, of the system and, and the question we're trying to address. So a lot of the big models that you've seen make projections, a lot of them are um, what we call mass action or compartmental models, where we use systems of differential equations to represent the changing number of people who are infected and recovered and hospitalized. But certainly um, we also use uh, agent-based models um, when we want to capture more of that, that sort of micro level uh, dynamics. Um, we, we also use uh, network models, which um, sometimes borrow from an area of statistical physics called percolation theory which it's, it's a theory that was developed to model the spread of a, a liquid flowing through some sort of material where you have a bunch of channels that are either opened or closed. And you wanna know based on the configuration of the channels and the viscosity of the liquid, how it will flow. Well, it's sort of an analogous problem. We have these channels, which are contacts between people or groups of people, and we have the liquid, which is disease, and it has a certain transmission rate. And so we can borrow these tools uh, from physics to say something about how a virus might spread depending on the structure of the network structure of the population and any changes we make to that network. Mm -hmm. Lauren, can you uh, talk a little bit about the kind of reception that you've gotten within this kind of statistics community from ac academic statisticians, especially uh, for your work? I, I, I say I, I bring this up because, you know, I, I do a lot of applied statistical practice myself and statisticians are a tough crowd. They will always be able to poke the holes or find the subjective decisions that may, that you've made along the way. And in my applied practice, I'm not trying to do this in real time where you have, you know, where, you know, usually I have like a couple, you know, a year or two to work on like the sophisticated model and make sure it's, it's, it's as, as objective and as principled as possible. So how, how have things gone within the statistical community as far as your work? Yeah, well, there's been a real shift. I would say in normal times, the kinds of models we develop, the kinds of approaches we develop, you know, they, we face a lot of scrutiny when we send papers and articles for peer review, and, and um, which is appropriate, right? We want our models to be good, and that's, that's sort of one of the purposes of peer review. But in COVID, um, we and others are often trying to disseminate our models, disseminate our findings before we really have time to go through full-blown peer review. And there's sort of been a, somewhat of a shift in attitude. I mean, actually, a really great example of this is um, the CDC's forecasting ensemble. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but the CDC, you go to their website, you can see forecasts for how many people are going to die or be hospitalized from COVID. But it's not based on a single CDC model. It's actually based on now dozens of models that have been built and are being managed by groups just like mine. And the CDC is, is curating all these, assembling all these and ensembling them, sort of weighting the, the predictions of them to get sort of the most robust idea. And there's probably flaws and bugs and whatever in some of these models. And we'll find that out when we, we actually have time to peer review all these things. But the idea is that even if there's not flaws or bugs or whatever, there's still assumptions baked into each model and biases and, you know, technology preferences the modelers baked in. And so by taking this sort of 
ensemble or crowdsourcing approach, we get a much more robust idea of you know what's 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 going to come to pass. I wanted I wanted to follow up on that because one of the things that I've had fun doing is looking at those ensembles, those individual forecasts, and the there was a University of Washington modeling consortium, if you will. I'm not sure what who who got a lot of attention early on. And one thing the statistics community has a kind of agreed on, and some of my colleagues who we sharply agree on some things, we've all come to an agreement on this: is though their forecasts have been so bad, and so consistently bad, almost from the beginning, that it's been it's it, it was it's almost shocking. And one of the things that I had fun looking at was among the ensembles is um, has led to what, what I consider to be the, the only thing I know that to be true about COVID is that uncertainty dominates. And it's just thrown curveball after curveball after curveball at us. And one of the things you see when you look at the ensembles or the individual forecasts, including your own, is most, most of them are, are, are sophisticated enough to provide interval forecasts or, or spaghetti graphs. You use spaghetti graphs, which, to the, which essentially means you look at the time trends, but do multiple replicates through some sort of you know, Bayes model or some sort of parameter uncertainty. And then that gives you these ranges. And what would typically happen is you'd see vast um, over, you know, gaps between the 95% limits among these different forecasts. And you look at it and like, well, can't you at least contain each other's, uh, I don't, you have to be, you can have different forecasts, but you, you should at least have um, 95 intervals that cover each other. So as a person not producing my own model, which I have not done because it really has to be informed by theory and the, some of the techniques that you use. We as statisticians, we tried to be non-parametric. That's great in the past, but predicting the future where things get hard is not that easy. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, how have you dealt with this constant update that shows that, oops, that didn't go with as well we thought, and it just it 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 went a different way. And even as we're t- talking about now in your home state of Texas, you know, when the mask mandate was lifted, everyone screamed, "You're going to have a catastrophe." Well, here in New Jersey, things are a shitload worse than they are in Texas, and we still have a mask. I mean, so what is what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> just that. <laughs> uh, so let me. I mean, for your. For your listeners, I'm sure you're well, but well aware. But you know, these are listeners. Yes, we can't. We cannot hold. Uh, I think epidemic forecasting up to the same standards as weather forecasting, right? We, I mean, that is an enterprise that's been under development for centuries. I think you know the annual budget for weather forecasting is somewhere around a billion dollars. I think prior to the pandemic, we might have spent five million dollars a year trying to build disease models. So it's really a pretty brand new enterprise. But but more importantly. You know, when you're trying to forecast the weather, you're trying to forecast a physical system, a purely physical system. When you're forecasting uh, uh, epidemics or pandemics, you have to worry, you know, not only about the transmission dynamics of the virus, but the evolutionary dynamics of the virus, the feedback between the disease and human behavior, policymaking. And we can learn an awful lot about how a virus behaves, but we really do not have a crystal ball for the decisions that people are going to make even next week or when our governor's going to lift the face mask or whatever. So so one of the major limitations for all those forecasting models is because we re- is that we just don't have the human part in it. And so for that reason, in our own group, we never offer forecasts more than three or four weeks out. However, what we do to support policymakers, to support planning, is we really distinguish between what we call forecasts, which are meant to kind of see the future, and scenario projections. So we don't know what scenario we're going to be in come four you know, months from now, but we can give you a bunch of possibilities and show you what things might look like under those scenarios. And, and that's where 
you know, we can reduce the uncertainty a little bit, not in which scenario we're in, but for a given scenario. And that, and that, those are the, that's the kind of modeling we've done quite a bit to support just thinking about and policymaking at multiple different scales. Lauren, that makes a ton of sense. And, um, and it helps us understand a little bit about how you practitioners are thinking about it in, in a way that we're not. But there's one follow-up I want, and it's just like, it is the question of like, what's going on? Adi raised this example of Texas doing away with the face mask mandate. And everybody, you know, everybody from, well, not everybody, a lot of people thought, well, okay, Texas is gonna blow up now. And they, and they just haven't. So as an expert and as a modeler, what, how, how do you explain the dynamics and just taking Texas as an example over the last month? So this has happened many times throughout the pandemic. We see a change, there's a change in policy, change in behavior, and we stare for like weeks. We're like, why don't we see it yet? Why don't we see it yet? And then we see it, right? And so one thing we learned just by looking at the curves that have occurred time and time again is that a change happens. And because of this sort of nonlinear exponential sort of typical growth of a pandemic, it takes a while to actually see it in the data. So I would not be surprised at all if we still see the consequences of the, the recent lifting of the face mask order the spring break that just happened two weeks ago. Anecdotally, I've heard of dozens of people who came back from spring break to Austin, Texas infected. We have the B117 and other variants that's uh, emerging and spreading throughout Texas. You know, on the, on, on the positive side, we are doing a better and better job of rolling out vaccines, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if we still see evidence that the change in uh, the policy and, and recent behavior actually is gonna make the situation a little worse before it gets better again. Yeah, Dr. Morris, I want to relate something you just said to something, again, in my home field of marketing, which is, you know, if you really want to understand, you know, counterfactuals, you know, the best way to do it is obviously to have data that's a randomized experiment. The problem is you can't really run this type of randomized experiment you just want, you want, and you even mentioned something, which is the people's behavior is a function of the policy. And that's in, in the field of marketing, we call that endogeneity. They call it that in every field. It's, it's an econometric problem. How do you deal with forecasts when you know the policy you set affects behavior, behavior affects the policy, and then policy affects behavior? How do you possibly then come up with, I'll call it forecasts, as you said, you, try, you don't really take the human element into account, but how can you try to make some headway on that problem? Yeah, well, first of all, we need you to come on board and help us uh, get some of that marketing expertise into our models. But, um, but it's, it's challenging. And I'll go back to uh, an example that I mentioned earlier in this conversation, which is that we, we developed the triggers that Austin has used for uh, about a year now um, to decide when they're going to tighten and relax measures. And in order to do that, we did some pretty intensive computation. We had an epidemiological model. We embedded it in a numerical optimization framework. And we use supercomputers at the Texas Advanced Computing Center to search the vast space of possible combinations of triggers to find the thresholds that were guaranteed to keep our hospitalizations under capacity and to minimize as much as possible the amount of time we had to spend under restrictive stay-home-like orders. But in order to do that, we had to make some assumptions about how people would actually behave when we were in orange, when we were in red. When And so right. to do that, you know, some of it is guesswork, but some of it is the longer we've lived through this pandemic, the more historical data we actually have, where we can see how people behaved under different kinds of policies. So we, more and more, that those parts of our models are being driven by parameters we're estimating directly from data that have been produced over the last 12 months. I wanted to ask you about schools. So um, this is the most hotly contested um, 
issue here on the East Coast in particular. I don't know what's happening in Texas because there's a huge divide between the private schools, which have essentially not closed um, at all, even though they've some of them have done partly hybrid and others absolutely nothing, just essentially been open um, since um, basically May. And the public schools, which are mostly in the Northeast, essentially still completely closed, depending on the on the the uh, municipality. What is the you you wrote a paper which I which I had a chance to look at. It really, was a comparison of a couple of different schools, and I wanted to pull out a line in it and just quote it back. Which you didn't seem to seem to indicate see that there was any evidence of student to teacher or teacher to student transmission within students, sure, and then outside of it. But the idea being that the major obstacle to opening the schools have been the teachers. Um, and uh, the, the, where does the scientific data say at the point, now that we are so far into this, what do we now know or what do you think we know about the safety of opening up a school from the teacher perspective? From, from the teacher's perspective. You can give me any perspective you like. You can yeah. answer the question any way you yeah. want. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, no, I want to emphasize that the paper you're referring to, those are anecdotes. Those are two schools that yeah. were, you know, imposed a lot of policies to, uh, to protect against transmission in schools, and also we're very regularly testing to also provide another safeguard for disease entering the school. So those are sort of ideal conditions, right? And, and there is certainly evidence that, that the virus has spread between students you know, on school campuses, although it's you know, fairly rare and a lot of schools have successfully managed the school year. So from the teacher's perspective, get vaccinated, right? I mean, if you wanna mitigate your own risk, the, the number one thing you can do is, is to get vaccinated and encourage all of those you work with and all those around you to vaccinate. Um, other, you know, in addition to that, you know, all the precautions we're aware of, you know, face masks, even though there's questions about distancing, distance helps, right? I mean, the virus spreads in a physical way and the farther you are from someone who is infected, the less likely it is the, the virus will get to you. So distancing, ventilation, all those things still apply. Um, and the other thing that can, you know, that a lot of these private schools have had the luxury of using is proactive testing or sometimes called surveillance testing, you know, where, where they are testing everybody who walks into the school once a week, twice a week. And they're often in schools where I've actually been providing guidance and hearing what's going on. They're, they're catching a lot of cases and they're preventing them from going in schools. And so, you know, if there's a lot of virus in the community, it will show up at your school. If you're vaccinated, you're going to be, you know, protected as an individual and the more people are vaccinated, be protected as, as a school community. Professor Myers, one of the things I love talking about, and we talk a lot about here on Wharton Moneyball, is, you know, effect sizes. Like, how big an effect is something? Like, I'd much rather be 20 than 60 or 70 when it comes to COVID. Um, you mentioned things like ventilation and six feet and distance and stuff like that. How big an effect do those have in comparison to, like, you know, like, is I'm, I'm making something up, and then you'll entirely correct me. Is five feet worth 12 years in age? Like, how would I actually try to equate these different factors and how big are they? Yeah, I, those are great questions. I don't have definitive answers to that. I don't know if we have a, as a community have definitive answers. I mean, certainly face masks have a profound effect on reducing risk. Certainly our vaccines are remarkably effective and should have a profound effect of reducing risk. The rest is a little bit hazy, but kind of the, you know, but it makes physical sense. It makes biological sense, right? The, the, the ventilation, the distance, the more of it you can do, um, the lower the risk will be. One of the things that I think makes it hazy is that, you know, as, as kind of policies, these things kind of 
typically kind of get implemented together. And so we don't have, you know, like the, we, it's hard to kind of estimate the effect specifically of distancing by six feet or 12 feet or whatever, because it's Shane being, wants a factorial design here. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, I, I guess my, to turn this into a question, like, because you know, this kind of the wealth of studies out there more than me, is there going to be enough variation in these kind of implementations across across the nation, across the world, where even retrospectively, we might have some hope of teasing out kind of the marginal effects of these things, as opposed to them all kind of being to, uh, implemented together? You know, I don't know, but there are a lot of researchers that are trying to capture as much data as they can in real time in schools, in communities. Um, there's the, I mean, this is at a different scale, but there's the, the Oxford response tracking, I think I'm saying it wrong, policy response tracking project, where they are trying at a very granular geopolitical scale to track exactly what policies are in place every single day of this pandemic, so that in retrospect, we can go back and look and say, how did different combinations of policies or, you know, for folks who are looking at schools, different combinations of, of measures. But this sort of goes back to kind of the reason for the existence of our area of science. I have, you know, before the pandemic, people would often ask me like, why does anybody fund what you do? Why, you know, what's, what's, wow. what's the point of this all? You're thinking about pandemics that may never happen. Um, and, and one of the kind of, one of the arguments that I, that I would make is that, you know, if and when we have a pandemic, or even if we just want to try to mitigate something like seasonal flu, we cannot conduct the kind of controlled experiments that we would like to conduct, right? In order to figure out, should we vaccinate adults first or kids first, right? We're not gonna intentionally go out and infect two populations and try two different vaccination strategies. And so I'm in a field where we just can't, often can't get the kind of data, can't structure the kind of experiments we'd like in order to really infer cause and effect. And so that's where, so our area of science, we basically are, are building um, systems, virtual systems where we can conduct those kinds of experiments virtually in as data-driven a way as possible. So I, I wanted to ask you, I know it's getting close to our, to our time, but I want to try to get you on the spot on something, you know, give a firm <laughs> answer. So I had the, I went earlier today, I went and looked at the per capita death rates among our 50 states. And, I, and, and uh, it's a pretty big difference between the top and the bottom. It's a factor of 10 between the lowest state, which you probably can guess, I don't think it's Hawaii, um, and the highest state, which is New York, it's still New York in terms of per capita death rates is where it all kind of began. Honey, what are those per capita death rates roughly? What's that? Uh, oh, um, we, you want anyone, we, we usually often play a high-low game or a guessing game <laughs> at this point in our, just to see your intuition. Um, it's about 300 in New York and it's about 30 in, in Hawaii, a little shy of 300 in New York and around 30 in Hawaii. What, and to get you on a, what has caused that? Obviously, Hawaii is an island and New York is, is where it all began. So let's take them off the table. But there's plenty of co close competitors to Hawaii. It's a big range. It's essentially normally distributed with a mean of about 150 and a standard deviation of around 70. Why did some states do so much better and others not? What would you say was the reason? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's sort of a, it's a constellation of, of factors. But, you know, you know, in thinking about this, you really have to think about, we're talking about deaths, right? We're, we're, we have to think yeah. about what was the exposure rate, right? What's, what is the likelihood somebody's infected? And then if you're infected, you know, what's the likelihood you're going to die, right? And so, so probably a lot of this is driven by exposure, just prevalence and spread of the virus in, you know, in a differ between states. And, and a lot of, you know, the states that didn't do as well probably had uh, less restrictive policies uh, and maybe didn't act or respond as proactively as they could and probably did not do
do as good a job at sort of generally cultivating a culture of caution among the people who lived in the state. And so, you know, I think just that that increased exposure boils down to policies and behavior. Um, and then there's probably a small element of just the makeup of the population in terms of risk groups, right? If, you know, some states and some communities have higher proportions of high-risk individuals, have racial or ethnic minority groups that are at higher risk for severe outcomes because of chronic lack of access to resources and healthcare. Uh, but a lot of it is just about how much we've allowed it to spread in different states at different times. Well, speaking of spread, we've been waiting for this herd immunity to kick in for a long time. And we've been uh, speculating on what it takes to get there, when we're gonna get there, how grand life will be when we get there. You have tragically uh, changed our opinions here recently that it's, that it's farther away or maybe unreachable. Can you give us the latest on what you think about herd immunity and whether we're going to get there at all? Yeah. So, I mean, herd immunity is kind of a, a slippery concept, but, you know, basically it's, it's when we get to the point that there's enough people immune in our communities and they're either immunized sort of naturally because they've been infected or they've been vaccinated, but there's enough people immune that the virus just can't spread anymore. That, it, that it, we get to the point that, you know, for every person who gets infected, on average, they're expected to infect less than one other person. And so just, you know, given those dynamics, we expect it to dissipate on its own. And we, we absolutely, you know, with, with vaccines rolling out, I think it's over a quarter of people now have had at least one dose in the United States. You know, we, we you know, the early models suggest that we need to get to somewhere around 60 or 70% of people immunized one way or another in order to achieve herd immunity. Um, so we're moving in that direction. But there are some major challenges. First of all, you know, pockets of individuals who just don't have the same kind of access to vaccines or willingness to take vaccines. So that 25% is not equally distributed across our population. We're not going to achieve herd immunity until we start vaccinating children. And then we really, there's still a lot of uncertainty about these variants of concern and the extent to which um, they're going to evade the immunity that's provided by vaccines or, or prior infections. And so I'm not saying it's an impossibility or that it's forever. But it's just it's not tomorrow. And we really have to make sure that we are you know, getting vaccines out to to everyone and we're recovering those pockets. And and we may have to wait till we get we get children vaccinated as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Professor Myers, last question for you. As we think about getting past this one, how should we think about the next one? How should we think about, you know, it's kind of been 100 years since the world has seen something quite this dramatic. Are we safe for another 100 years or is the mere existence of this and recent occurrences in the last decades of smaller versions mean that it's not going to be another 100 years? How do you think about it as a true expert in this field? Yeah, I, th I think it's not going to be uh, another 100 years. Um, I mean, I think, you know, our, our globe has changed in terms of its connectivity, its encroachment on wild habitats, um, the way we uh, we. We uh, we do uh, real livestock, right? There's so many so many different things that have increased the risks of introductions of potential threats. And just in my professional lifetime, we have seen the gaps between threats get smaller and smaller. SARS in 2003, H1N1 in 2009, uh, Ebola in 2015, Zika barely a year or so later, and now and now COVID. And so I think I think the pace of these threats is increasing. And I think it's really important as we look back at kind of lessons learned from COVID, it's really important that we take major steps to overcome what I think of as sort of a failure of imagination in preparing for this threat. You know, as somebody who has built models for policymakers, for public health agencies for decades now, I will tell you that there's some really fundamental things about this threat that we never considered. 
We never modeled that everybody might have to wear face masks. We never modeled that uh, decisions are going to be politicized. You know, we never modeled that we may have to stay home for months at a time, and it's going to have catastrophic impacts on education, on our socioeconomic well-being. And and mm -hmm. looking forward, we have to just consider a much wider range of threats and, and, and build models, build resources so that we're better prepared. Sobering, but good to know. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you for the work and sharing it with us today. We look forward to seeing more of what you have um, in the future. We wish you the best with it. Okay, thank you so much. Great to talk to Professor Lauren Ansel Myers, University of Texas, on the front lines with COVID-19 modeling has been for the last 14 months or so. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. You guys can jump in the conversation. You can ping us on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to catch us at WMoneyball. At WMoneyball is our handle there. We cover the world of sports analytics and are happy to take your questions, observations, complaints, ideas, whatever you got. You can also send us an email. We consider it our mailbag. We have an email now, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We collect those observations and, and emails periodically, share them on air. We love to hear from you. Guys, uh, I, I, I could spend the next 15 minutes just debriefing that conversation with Professor Myers. My goodness gracious. About time we talked to someone who knew what the heck's going on. Bunch of schmoes up here just giving opinions. Gracious. We could have been that for a little that, while. Well, we're giving well, statistical opinions based on limited information. I mean, that's, I mean, that, honestly, how would you describe academics but a bunch of schmoes giving opinions? <laughs> am I right? I mean, you know, I, I, I want to respond that in, in more seriously. It's funny because people say, always say, like, ask the scientists. The problem is, is that there's so many scientists. There's the virologist, the microbiologist, there's the ER doctor, there's the statistician, the epidemiologist, and they all have sort of different points of views. And I actually think in many respects, we should be talking to people like us who are kind of general or even economists who think about the economy and, and its and its roles and even psychiatrists and things. It's just too in addition, for one in addition to the other people. In yes, addition but it, it's too complicated for one person. I felt bad keeping her for 35 minutes, man. She's like doing real work out there, helping the world. She's busy. She's got all these things going on. What is she doing talking to us for half an hour? All right, let's change gears, talk sports. There's been some sports. We are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, just a couple hours away from tip-off in the last two games of the Elite Eight. We have half the Final Four set. The other half will be set in a few hours. By the time this is posted on Wednesday, we'll have the, note, we'll have the whole Final Four. What do you guys make of the tournament? It got a little chalky this weekend, didn't it? Just a little, a little yeah, chalky. Yeah, it's been, you know, it, it makes me think again, we've talked about this, is that there's lots of uncertainty in rankings. There are, we know this. But there really, there's much more uncertainty in the middle than there are in the tails. Like if you had told people, and by the way, we still have two more Elite Eight games to go, but the likelihood that it's going to end up being Gonzaga, who has been a unanimous number one seed, and there's also been, you know, Baylor is in um, Michigan. They're at least a favorite. Um, the other one, of course, is Houston, which is a two seed. So there really hasn't been the massive uncertainty at the top. I mean, likely we talked about how to measure uncertainty. We're likely to end up with three ones and a two. Yeah. Or, or another way to say it is maybe the despair, like, you know, the kind of the 
distribution of talent in college basketball, you know, there's kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to tell, you know, or, or you know, like a, a five, uh, a, a 12 seed can beat a five seed pretty easily, but like actually making it through multiple upsets in the tournament and going up against these ones, twos, three seeds. I mean, there, there just could be kind of too steep a climb in terms of talent or, or basically, you know, well, let's, talk, let's, talk, let's talk, tell too many stories. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how uncertain this year's tournament was and how high the cumulative seed total was going to be mm-hmm. in the final four. I think the average, I think we all guessed the, about 10 to 12, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, we know. Yeah, exactly. And, and we were right on. It turns out the average, we found some folks who ran these numbers, the average is like 11 and a half or something, 10, 11, something like that. We were just below it. And the mode, the mode's lower, the mode's seven. The mode's no like problem. Just root, one, one, for, just root for UCLA tonight and our forecasts are going to be spot on. Well, that I mean, again, my, my, my point is more that like, my point is more the kind of a potential distributional mechanism by which we continue to trick ourselves every year into thinking, you know, that, that things are going to, that, you know, these, we're going to get a ton of upsets that are going to percolate all the way through the tournament. Basically, I guess my, you know, if, if my kind of distributional assumption is correct, then you would see a lot of upsets kind of early on, but that it, 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 it inevitably will turn chalky. Yeah. The part that was interesting to me also about the final four games, all of the favorites, obviously the three ones and the two, they were all according to the betting lines. 80% favorites or more. Now that really, I mean, to me, that means it goes back to what Shane's saying. Like maybe there was just a big gap between these top, let's call it seven, eight, nine, ten teams, and then the remaining teams. Because I find it, I find it strange that all four final four games had a minimum spread of seven and a half. They went to eight points, which looking at the win probabilities, they were according to FPI, were 80% or more all four games. I don't remember a time where the final four, like every one of them was like a biased coin so heavily towards the favorite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't have a, a good explanation for why there might be that kind of separation at the top. I, I suppose, you know, some years are going to fall that way. That's just the way it is. Some years the separation will be the top team or the top two teams. And maybe we have, maybe we still have that. I mean, that's from the pre-tournament odds, you expect Gonzaga to have that kind of separation from the rest of the field. And we may see it yet, but I suppose you just get these gaps sometimes. Or or maybe we're just telling stories by the way that, Cards have fallen. But it's still the part that's still shocking to me. Again, um, I went to various betting sites. I tried to get the updated odds after last night's game. I couldn't quite find them. But here's before last night's game, the part that still surprises me. If I told you, now, Adi, correct me if I'm thinking about this wrong. And by the way, we study this in marketing. Let's suppose before last night's game, okay, Gonzaga and Baylor, the top two teams, Gonzaga was a little more than a three to one favorite if they had been playing Baylor, like on the betting odds, like one's plus 125, the other one's plus 400. Gonzaga was plus 125, Baylor was plus 400. If I got rid of the, let's imagine the two of them meet in the finals. Is there any reason, A, to believe that the ratio of their odds would change if I eliminate the other six teams? In other words, we call this um, independence of irrelevant alternatives in marketing. If you get rid of a bunch of lower alternatives, the relative preference, in this case, odds of one and two shouldn't change that much. And then my second question is, why is Gonzaga so much still the favorite 
win. I understand they're 29-0. I get this. It hasn't been done. No one's been undefeated since Bobby Knight's 76 Indiana team. But why, if you're going to tell me they're going to be a 3-1 to favorite against Baylor or potentially in the finals? So, Adi, this is a question to you. What do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, it doesn't have to be because of the schedule paths, right? So if it starts off uh, in one ratio, one side of that could have a much tougher path to get to the final four than the other. Assuming those factors are equal and relatively they should be because of the balance of the draw, then yes, it should stay exactly that that ratio. Um, I think that um, Gonzalez is probably still is now is now is too expensive. I mean, you're not getting good odds on on Gonzaga in the betting markets. They're not they're not 125. I mean, that that's crazy. That's almost that's a 45 percent probability of winning at all. That seems really and unlikely. that was with eight teams left. Just to remind that's right. You. And that seems really unlikely, given that the, the other number ones and twos are still around. I mean, that doesn't make that. Well, much are we gonna hold on? Fast forward uh, next week, and are we going to sit here and say, well, it uh, looks like there was just a lot of separation between number one and everybody else, and the betting market well, had listen, it It started off at about one-third, right? So, And we, I think some of us thought that that was high. Gonzaga getting to here would have had to be, what, um, it, it, the, probability, the pre-tournament probability of them getting to here would have been 75% in order to make it consistent with what we see here. I would have thought that- it would have been higher. That that's yeah yeah okay fair enough you thought it would have been higher um, well talk talk to anybody else jumping out to you in the rain, remaining six teams by t- this time tomorrow we'll have four but right now we have six and I'm curious especially about Michigan I'm especially curious about Juwan Howard as a rookie coach out there and having arrived there without I believe without any head coaching experience right and he's doing what he's doing with this team what did, what does it do we update what you believe it takes to be a successful college coach from his experience i've watched a bunch of their games they're beautifully coached i mean they move the ball well they defend well they pass to the open man very they they always seem like they're controlling the tempo of the game and so I've been ridiculously impressed by Michigan. And I don't mean the outcomes, win-losses. I just mean when I watched, like yesterday, I tried to, you know, Houston, which I forget the coach's name, famous coach um, who's been in the league. I'll think of it in just a second. He tried to give the game away by such bad coaching. Like literally the ball stopped moving in the second half. They got up. They started taking all of these points. You know, they started uh, slowing the ball down. Just absolutely terrible. Um, Absolutely terrible. I think Juwan Howard's done a tremendous, tremendous job. Tremendous. Well, the coach, we're ending up with some with some interesting coaching matchups. Scott Drew is. It was Kelvin Kelvin Sampson, by the way, is the Houston head coach. Kelvin Sampson, who obviously has been around college basketball for years and years and years. I thought he it was it was one of the worst coaching jobs in the second half I had ever seen. They basically stopped running the ball and, and they just dribbled it up slowly every time. And I'm compa- contrasting that with Jawan Howard, who I think's been playing his style for 48 minutes, and let's see what happens at the end. I. I just loved watching him coach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'll be curious to see what happens tonight. We got a final four. What do y'all think about the schedule? Just a real quick aside. We're, I'm so used to the one schedule for March Madness, and now they're throwing a different schedule at us, and it's throwing me off my game altogether. Tuesday games? What's going on here? 
Well, it was because of COVID and the delay that they pushed everything back. And now the majority of games, you know, it used to be, Cade, you're used to like I am, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday schedule. But now mm-hmm. they shifted it two days because of the play-in games had to be moved and everything else. So then it was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I have to agree. I like the I like the finality of Sunday. Sunday yeah, seems like on. a much more momentous yeah. day. Like I made the final four and it's, Tuesday. No, we shouldn't be dealing with this on Tuesday afternoon. It's, uh, I, but I, I didn't. I thought. I thought maybe the first weekend would be off and they would get back on track, but not so much. Um, anything on the basketball front notable on the on the NBA side? Well, lots of things. I mean, if you want to talk about the definition of super teams, I mean, this keeps happening now. So the Nets. I don't know if it was since we last spoke. I know they've picked up LaMarcus Aldridge since we last spoke, but they also got Blake Griffin. So let's forget. I mean, think about the five major players right now on the Nets. Harden, Irving, Durant, Aldridge, and Griffin. I mean, that, that's the all-star team. I mean, in, in matter of fact, if you go back, some of them are a little bit past their prime. But if you go back two or three years, those are five of the 20 20- best players in the NBA and they're all on the nets now. So that's interesting. The Lakers got Drummond, Andre Drummond, you know, he's a 2010 guy and that's a big, that's a big pickup for them as well. Um, If these super teams keep happening, it's just going to get harder and harder for there to be more than four or five competitive teams in the NBA. Now I know last year, the heat made it all the way to the finals they're by no means a super team. Matter of fact, the only person that probably many of our listeners, or if you're not an NBA fan, can name is Jimmy Butler's on the Heat. And many of those people don't even know yet he's on the Heat. The rest of their guys, it was remarkable what they did. Uh, but I think to win in the future, you're going to have to have this super team. And I think the Nets have got a super team. What probability would you put right now on the Nets and Lakers facing off in the finals? Um. I would say 20% because I give, for me, I give a 50. Well, I'll tell you why it's as high. I I think the Nets, I I would take the Nets against the field at an even money bet right now. I think the Nets are the best team in the East, so I put them at 50%. The Lakers are at best 40%, maybe a third. There are a bunch of talented teams out West, so maybe it's lower than that. Maybe it's one-sixth, something like that. But Mm -hmm. 40 to 50% for the Nets, somewhere around maybe a quarter to a third for the Lakers. So somewhere between 12 to 16%, somewhere in that range. What's the latest update on Durant? And how much do we expect to see him? Oh, they say he could play right now, but why bother? They say he looks phenomenal in practice. I mean, he's like, he's ready to go. And what, what do we, what, what's our model for likelihood of injury giving historical injury? So he, he blows out his um, Achilles two years ago now. His, this season, he's had a little trouble getting going. I mean, these things are they tend to be connected and predictive, right? So Absolutely. Yeah, the poor Nets, they've only gone, was it 14-2, and two, even with Durant out? They've only had Harden and Irving and really too <laughs> bad. And now they've picked up uh, Blake Griffin and uh, LaMarcus Aldridge. I think they might be the favorite in the East, even without Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to have the super team, I want to watch the super team. Come on, man. I need to see Me all too. the pieces. I in do place. too. I need to see the pieces in place. Well, I mean – and. and- historically do you think is the super team even more kind of common now because i kind of feel like like how many championships in the last say 20 years or 30 years have not been won by super teams it's good i mean i I, you know basketball better than me but i mean maybe the raptors would be an example of a non but they but they had Kawhi, and he wasn't the only one right it's not a super team it's not a super team it wasn't a super team 
Yeah, you know. well, you'd have to, I mean, you'd have to put, let's say in the last 20 years, you'd have to put all the Lakers teams on there with Kobe and Shaq, right? You'd yep. have to put the LeBron teams on there with mm-hmm. not, the, not the ones where he was LeBron and a bunch of people like me and you, but the Heat LeBron teams. Uh, the Spurs teams, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it was Tim Duncan and a bunch of very, very good players, but I mean, it certainly, I don't know, maybe half and half. That would be yeah, my okay. guess, Shane. But did, did LeBron ever get it done with the Cavs on his own? Did he ever drag all the other guys along? He got them to the finals. He but got not all the way? Not all the way. That, that's why LeBron is only four and six in the NBA finals, because four or five of those, he dragged me and you to the NBA finals with him. <laughs> All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Open lines. Still going to call it open lines. It's open topics. Audie Winder's here. Shane Jensen is here. This is Cade Massey. We talked a little bit about basketball last quarter. We have a few other things to talk about, guys. I, I got to say, I was in the airport over the weekend and saw, that's the only reason I saw this, but it was spectacular. Highlights of the University of Minnesota Duluth against North Dakota hockey game to make the Frozen Four. All right? So this is the quarterfinals. Yeah. And, it, and I just, they played like a three-minute highlight segment because they had so much to show in the airport, and it was so much fun. Five overtimes, right? It's like the longest. Five overtimes. Minnesota Duluth was up 2 nothing with like a minute and a half left. 2 nothing, a minute and a half left, a minute and a half away from the Frozen Four. North Dakota, who's like the defending champs, they got washed out. Everything got washed out last season, but they're the 19 champs and maybe the 18 champs too. They come back and they score two goals in the last minute and a half to take it to OT. And then it goes – all the way to five OTs. And there were crazy things happening the whole time. The Minnesota Duluth had to pull their goalie. He like, he like fatigued out too much, too much. Can you, you can imagine what you can yeah. imagine the pressure these guys face. They had well, to put you're still like stopping 30 shots. Now you have to stop 80 was, somehow. It was 60, it was 60 yeah. shots on goals yeah. or 60 shots on goal. And so this poor guy has to come off the bench and go play goal in like the fourth overtime of this match. And he made a great save. Anyway, Minnesota Duluth managed to get it done, and they made it to the Frozen Four. But it was a lot of fun to watch. It was it was actually a complete ball to watch. It made me feel like I wasn't watching enough hockey. That's really amazing. Yeah, and I mean, I, I you know, I, I wanted to kind of bring up this NHL uh, kind of uh, thing, and you're not going to like it nearly as much. But have you been paying attention to what's been going on with the Buffalo Sabres this year? It makes me so sad. I kind of avert my eyes. Yeah, so they are they're on an 18 game losing streak. They've actually tied the record. It's the longest losing streak in uh NHL history. Jeez, um, really? Yeah, longest in history? Games. Longest in history. Tied for the longest in history. It's a little um, surprising that 18 is the longest, isn't it? That's well, yeah, just and I mean how much random there's there randomness there no, is. No, no, and I was actually I mean I I I wish I could uh you know, I, unfortunately Eric had to go, but like I, I wish I could kind of ask him you know, like for the NBA, you know, again, I often like big basketball versus hockey comparisons because at least the same number of games and stuff like that. Like what's what's like the longest losing streak in basketball? It can't be. We should, we should know that. We have to yeah. get that because it, we think of basketball as probably the most deterministic of the four major yeah. sports and hockey 
Probably it's a little bit messy in hockey because, you know, there, there's a big difference between winless streaks and losing streaks in hockey because of, like, ties and all this right. kind of overtime yeah, losses right. and all this type of stuff. So it gets okay. a little muddy, but it is a, a pretty historic losing streak. And it's a kind of, you know, I mean, I Buffalo, unfortunately, also hold, cur- currently is the team that has, got, has the longest playoff drought of any team in the NHL as well. I think they've got eight or nine seasons like the playoffs, so they're kind of at a, a nader right now or one one assumes is a nader right now but um no they've had some naders that they're not the most storied franchise they've had a few good runs they made the finals i think mm-hmm. it made it was against the blues they might have yeah. had one of these epic overtime games in the stanley cup and they didn't quite get there when i was in buffalo they had a good run they had patty lafontaine alexander mcgillney dominic hassick one of the greatest goaltenders ever played the game in, in, in goal yep. that was just a fun a fun time for the buff for, for the Sabre fans. And, and they played in the odd, they played this old stadium. I, I cut my hockey teeth in one of these old school stadiums. That was so much fun. So you're right. I, that makes me very sad, Shane. What other losing streaks do y'all think of? The, the one that comes to mind for me in the, in football was the way the Bucks opened their, their entire yeah. franchise history. They went 0-14 the first year. This was when they played 14 games in a season. And they went 0-12 to, to open their second year. So they had yeah. a 26-game losing streak. And I suspect that's the longest at least in modern era. In no, I, I it's certainly for football. Ba- Audis, what like what's a what's an example of the longest losing streak in baseball? I mean, I mean, no, the longest winning streak is like at the range of like twenty games or so, and that's also interesting. I haven't even sort of thought about like how how much symmetry there is between the longest losing streak and the longest winning streak. Well, actually, there, there is much symmetry there. I think you'd expect longer losing streaks. You kind of think, right? I mean, it's uh, it's a lot easier for a team to be really bad than really good. Yeah, but 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 if, if hotness has anything to do with it, and you know mm-hmm. maybe we easier it isn't. I mean, Cleveland recently had a really long one. The A's had one. I think they beat the A's, and maybe there's another one historical. But very recently, the Cleveland had like 21, 22 wins, which is ridiculous for a sport for which no yeah. single game ever has a probability of a you know a priori a probability of say 0.7 would be really really high for a game outcome so to yeah. win 20 in a row at least according to the the 0.7 model is crazy football on the other hand or basketball you do have teams that are really are much better i mean you have 90 percent uh probability teams and 10 percent probability yeah. teams too <laughs> i mean so i would expect longer ones in football than baseball well, actually now, now, now it occurred to me didn't you like 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 speaking of kind of like the uh, disparity in like talent or whatever didn't women women's basketball college yeah, basketball UConn. didn't uconn have some insane UConn. winning right. streak yeah that's right well, yeah, like so. that. that's, that's exactly right that was a big one and also i'm thinking about the pre-scholarship limit era in college football I think Oklahoma has the longest win streak, and it's in the 50s, um, which is remarkable to think about now. I mean, that, that's when they're like, 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 games a year, so they're going five-plus years without losing a game. Speaking of the other side, though, my, I was in college. Columbia University just never won a game on football field and hadn't for years, at least in the Ivy League, and maybe they had won some some un-Ivy, and they were just constantly 0-8, whatever it was, right. uh, you know, year after year until, until they actually changed, uh, not the scholarship limits, but they changed the academic limits. So Columbia was able to lower their academic standards to recruit oh. better football players, and then, they, then, of course, they became the Ivy League champions. <laughs> wow. Maddie, I just put a, a couple kind of fun facts in the chat for us. So, okay, so the the, the Pistons own the record for longest uh, losing streak, fourteen games in basketball and professional basketball. Huh. So that's you know kind of at least you know in the range of what we're seeing in hockey. Interestingly enough, 
I don't have you're any. Like, I don't have any intuition for why the longest streak in basketball would be losing streak would be shorter than the longest streak in hockey. I would I would have thought the other way around, but that that I'm sad that I don't have better intuition for that. It's interesting. He gives right, us right. Well, and, and, well, it, there's also one that like basically like the Sixers lost 28 straight games spanning two seasons. Yeah, that's like my boxing. Okay. Example. My yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And and again, just for college football, where you you obviously do know the Northwestern Wildcats, thirty-four game losing streak, longest in Division One football history, thirty-four so, games. Okay, geez, and that was that. You know, those guys. That was you said it's like nineteen eighty-one. Yeah, the yeah. Wildcats when they made the Rose Bowl and were like nationally relevant in the nineties. That was a real transformation of that program. I think we we those of us who didn't grow up on. Northwestern football probably don't appreciate how sad, how sad the pre-going era was. Um, all right, fellas, we're rolling into the beginning of the baseball season. Um, I'm assuming that means y'all are like having trouble sleeping. You're bouncing out of bed in the mornings. And what, what does it mean for you? I mean, I, I would be getting more. I, I'm getting hyped. I'd, I'd be a little more hyped. <laughs> If the Yankees didn't look so good and like everybody else in the AL not look so good. Yeah. Judge hit the ball out of the stadium. Was that a big deal or not? A st- was that like, you know, people hit out of the, out of the stadium in San Francisco all the time. Not a big deal. Does, you mean it a big, in deal? The, big deal in the Steinbrenner field down in Tampa Bay? No. Okay. I mean, uh, Judge can hit the ball 480, 500 feet, and that's kind of routine. What's interesting, though, and looking forward to our next, um, in, to our interview in our final quarter, is the changes in the ball it's predicted that it's going to decrease the numbers of home runs by some fraction. And the way it's going to do that with less velocity off the bat, less traveling because of lower air, higher air resistance to see judge hit him that far with this ball potentially puts the lie to that, that hypothesis. So how are they changing the balls? It's like stickier somehow. Uh, no, no, no. Um, well, uh, not a little softer around the seams. I mean, this is not quite, I don't, I've read a little bit about this, um, but basically um, a little spongier. So it won't have the, the, uh, the, it'll just be the coefficient of restitution. I think they call it. It won't travel quite as far. The pitchers Mm -hmm. today have been saying it feels exactly the same to them. Um, But they've said that in the years earlier, although there was some mumbling that the seams were just lower. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the, one of the things that people don't have to, don't understand about baseball uh, is that, the ball to ball variation is really great in ways that matter. You don't think about that in basketball and football. The ball's the ball, right? What are we talking about? But in well, baseball- I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, I had to endure a season or so of like controversy about the ball being slightly different. Yes, indeed, of course. Game, but whatever. But the basic thing about what people don't understand, and there's a classic paper, Alan Nathan, and in, 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 with Baseball Prospectus, wrote a beautiful article. We bring it up every year mm-hmm. that, that takes boxes of balls and hit, puts them in indoors in a, in, a, in a cannon, in an air cannon, and sees how far it travels. But by the way, this, this isn't a high school kid or, or junior high kid, which is what it sounds like. This is an academic physicist, right? Yes, well, the, the, the most prominent baseball physicist alive today. Um, Wasn't he one of the guests on our, like the first two shows? I bet he was one of our yeah. first three shows he was a guest. Well, Rob Adair was, uh, was the most famous baseball statistician. He wrote the book on the physics of baseball. He just passed away uh, recently. So in om- an homage to uh, Rob Adair, uh, now Alan Nathan is certainly the, the most prominent. Uh, well, what did he discover when he, when he goes out to, and does this experiment? He shows that the, the, the within-box variation of baseballs is enough to make a 20-foot difference in the flight trajectory of a, of a, of a ball from three ah. to plus or minus 20. That's gigantic. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of the percentage of a, of the likelihood of a ball going out of the park. So one of the things that, that baseball baseball always shook their, you know, they said, you know, it's a, it's like a hand knitting process, right? So it's just not done. It's done to specifications, but there's variance. And so you get a, the right ball with low seams and high restitution, and that thing could go, you know, 20 more feet and in identical conditions than a ball that's slightly higher seams. And so we'll see what's going to happen this season. Um, the Yankees, you bring up the Yankees, Shane, but as a Yankee fan, I'm terrified of those behemoths getting all tangled up and broken. Right. And that seems to happen just about every year. Mike Stanton, who won the MVP just a couple of years ago, has been worthless for the Yankees for two seasons because he can't play. And yeah. Judge always seems to tear a, a rib cage or some something goes wrong with these giants. No, no, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of – I acknowledge that it's probably – it's been a frustrating, like, last three or four years for Yankees fans, I'm sure, because you've had these amazing – I mean, you know, kind of Yan- Yankees <laughs> super teams of old, except, you know, injuries and kind of – bad luck in the playoffs has kind of, you know, prevented them from getting to the world series. But I mean, I I do see of of all the kind of last few years, you know, it's hard to kind of factor injuries into this like projection, but the Yankees it's why it's the most wide open for the Yankees as it's been. Right. I mean, almost every single team that was competitive with them last year has regressed. Could we factor in injuries? Is is Adi's concern? Is that just a, a fan's, you know, anxiety, or is there some science to the to the injury proclivity of people as a function of their size in baseball? We should know something about that, right? It is definitely um, current research at the Sabermetrics Conference, which I participated in a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a delightful paper written by researchers from Sports Reference, uh, Sports Inc. Um, these are the guys who did baseball info solutions. Now they do sports info solutions. And they, they have an incredible database of injuries, and they try to forecast it. Injuries are really common. Um, yeah. The real question is how debilitating they are, and it seems to be at least beyond the ability to predict that. And a lot of the kind of – I will sort of say a lot of the projection models these days are kind of bottom-up in the sense that they really do, like, take the team as the component uh, – you know, this, the sum of its component parts, in which case you could if – you, if you knew enough about injuries to kind of predict them with – you know, you could kind of – you know, percolate those kind of predictions forward into like your seasonal projections of how the team does and stuff and, and what impact it would have. Well, Adi, you mentioned the Sabermetrics Conference. I think you presented some new research there and you you warned us about this research last year, I believe. And so I'm really curious to hear more about it now. Can you tell us what you were talking about? Well, it came about, I mean, something that I've been pondering for a long time. So I'll give you the background. Um, one of the great contributions of sabermetrics due to Mitch Lichman who's been on our show and uh, Tom Tango who has not um, has been something, a book they called the, the uh, they wrote a book called the book, which is a, a reference to uh, what they say in, in baseball. What's the book play? What's the book say, you know, which is a, a way to say, what does baseball traditional wisdom say you're supposed to do? That sounds like blackjack. Dude. Like there's a way exactly. to play. So they wrote this book and one of the insights that they, they discovered was that by the time you get to the third time through the order, the pitcher's a lot worse or the batters are a lot better. It's hard to tell the difference. And they, and they postulated that the reason for that was the batters get familiar with the pitcher. And by the time they've seen them twice and they enter the third time, they're much better. And that became the book re- rewrote itself in modern sabermetric form. And in this world series, uh, Jake, uh, Blake Snell for the race pitched 73 pitches beautifully through the first two times of the order was dominating the Dodgers and they yanked it. I remember. Yes. 
And the question was, that seems to be the new book play. So, okay, Adi, this set up here, you were doing this research before that happened, but then it's like right. the perfect motivating anecdote. Well, for you. So, so the real question, what is the, so when you do research, the question is, what is the, what is the research question? There's no denying that the batters are better the third time around, the pitchers are better, or, or the pitchers are worse, whatever you want. The question is why? So the reason that was given and it was accepted practice was that the, the familiarity of the batters of the pitchers upsets the balance. But there's an alternative explanation, and that is fatigue. The pitchers are just getting tired. And the reason why that's... Yeah, so that has nothing to do with the third time through. That just means no, it doesn't. an incremental batter. I mean, it's correlated. Correlated. Right. Right. I mean, it's really, you know, I mean... It, Superficial. It, it's really like the number of pitches or whatever. And I mean, it could yeah. even be more sophisticated than that, if you think about it, because but, but, a pitcher that's very fastball dominant versus, you know, something else could take more tire pitch. differently. Well, let's, let's, let's say that there, in general, these arguments that these threshold theories... I'm always super skeptical. I always want something to be smooth or continuous as much exactly. as possible. Exactly. In fact, well, the people like these threshold theories, but this one at least had a mechanism. And so it felt a little more compelling. The mechanism was it's a threshold, yes, but that's because that's the third time people see them. And right. And, and something so, special. They, so what they did was in their original paper, that paper in the book, they just binned an average, which is the, which is the sabermetric t- technique of the ages. You just group and you average. And that seems to be the governing technology if you don't know more sophisticated modeling techniques. And and the idea is that you just look at the, 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 not the batting average or not the slugging. They do something called WOBA, which is weighted on base percentage. And you can see that if you bin by group, by time through the order, first, second, and third, they progressively, the batters get better as you go on. But one thing that I had noticed a couple of years ago. is Is it more like a step function where they're a little bit better the second time and then they're a lot better the third time? Or is it more steady? Uh, Well, actually, it it seemed that they were better the third time. They're certainly a lot better the second time than the first. And they seem to be, originally, it was a pretty big jump the third time through the order in particular. But one thing that's changed a lot, and, and what happened since 2009 and when they first published this or even earlier, what's happened now is that pitchers don't make it through the third time through the order. And even back then, they didn't. They used to get pulled in the middle sometime in the middle of the third time through the order. What does that do? It creates a confounding factor. What is the confounder? The idea is that in the first two times through the order, everybody bats, good hitters, bad ones. But the third time through the order, the pitcher predominantly faces the best hitters and they're pulled. So the weaker hitters don't get to be represented in that bin in the third time. And so you expect to see an increase in the third time through the other. So the question is, do you control for that? And how do you do it? So I decided I would investigate this with some of our students, and we wrote a, a paper where we properly controlled for batter and pitcher quality, as well as park effects, handedness matching, um, and and the sequence of the batter in the game. We went one through 27, and lo and behold, unequivocally, what emerged was a smooth function. Right. So, so, so 21 does better than 20, 22 does better than 21, but there's no magic jump anywhere. No, what we call actually the technique, which is is something called a regression discontinuity. So mm-hmm. there's no regression discontinuity. In our case, it would be a spline discontinuity, which is a which is essentially a cubic, uh, not a, a function rather than a rather than a linear function, um, because it does it does it does accelerate. In what we did notice, yeah, is yeah, I, I'm a little surprised there's no jumps just like at the innings. 
you know, like a pitcher, like for example, that comes back after like their their first batter of of a, of an inning. You know, you, at least anecdotally, you say, well, that pitch. You know, yeah. now they're now they're going to struggle because they've been sitting for twenty minutes or whatever type of thing. You know, well, so that I, actually is an effect that we we didn't think to add. So thank you, Shane. Yeah. I might build rebuild the model with an effect. Um, it did we jump an inning? Um, because we just looked at it a bit by batter sequence. Mm-hmm. What we ended up seeing, which is actually very interesting, is that the pitchers are really very good through the first five or six batters. In fact. In fact, in the National League, they even seem to get better. In the, they they wow. start off and, and, and they get – now, it doesn't mean that they – remember, I'm adjusting for batter quality. So you have to be careful. If you, you're not going to see this in the direct measurements, only in what we call the residuals. So and, and but, there's a little bit of selection bias in that some pitchers, if they're really having an off day, don't even make it to that sixth batter or something like that. Ah, so that now now that's actually something that's another piece in, in that we actually tried to model in the various components. We did something called various components modeling, which is alternatively known as random effects modeling, which is alternatively known as Bayes modeling, except in a frequentist kind of approach. Um, but what we noticed was that that uh, pitchers do are flat in the beginning, and about batter six, they start to get worse. Um, and then about a batter, about batter 16 or so, they almost peak out. They don't really peak out. Things start to get really noisy. The measurements get noisy and they continuously do worse, but at a slower rate until about 22, 23. And then things kind of fall apart and the measurements get, the uncertainty gets large. But the message for teams is there's nothing magical about the third time through. The pitchers are getting tired. And the other piece in which Shane, in what Shane was actually alluding to, which is really fascinating. And we've talked about this. Um, and and um, it seems that pitchers, unlike batters, but especially pitchers, have a huge variation in individual performance game to game. Mm-hmm. This is something we don't generally believe is true in about batters. We don't generally believe it's true about basketball players. And I wonder whether youth might think it's true about football players. In other words, players have good games and bad games, and they can have good, good games and bad games based on exogenous factors uh, they can get injured or, and that can cause them but I don't mean that I mean the pitchers really look quite different game to game obviously the best pitchers always look great bad pitchers always look terrible but you said always and you don't mean always I don't mean always I mean but what I, what I generally mean is imagine a, an, a media a team a, a league median pitcher think about that it turns out a, a league median pitcher can quite frequently look like a top pitcher or a really bottom pitcher, not the super. Be more, be more specific. You said medium, but then you waved your hands at the top and bottom. How how okay. high and how low they so, go? I, I think of it in terms of percentiles. A um, well, let, let's put it this way: you can a fiftieth percentile pitcher can either always look like the fiftieth percentile, or they can sometimes look like the the eighty fifth, or sometimes like the fifteenth percentile. And essentially what I'm arguing is that about one in six times, based, this comes from the, the normal distribution, which it seems to look like, about one in six times the, a medium pitcher looks like a 15th percentile pitcher, which is really good. And an equivalent one in six times will look like a 85th percentile pitcher, which is really bad. So there's- It's interesting to look at how, like how this varies by kind of type of pitcher. Cause I would, yeah. I would assume that like, you know, somebody who's just got that hundred mile an hour fastball and can just keep throwing that is mm-hmm. going to be more consistent game to game. That's, I mean, the reason I know that pitchers are inconsistent, like game to game in their own performances, you hear interviews be like, Oh, well my curveball, I just didn't have it today. Yeah. 
or my, you know, and it, and it seems to often be a situation where they so, they have trouble locating some of their secondary pitches or maybe their primary pitch as well. But you, so I, I kind of wonder how, you know, whether you would have less variance among the pitchers that kind of quote unquote have a, a simpler but dominating repertoire. I mean, the, the extreme version of that is the way knuckleball pitchers talk about their stuff. Yes, no, huh? I will. Yep. That's right. Yep. Sometimes they're completely unhittable and uncatchable, as a matter of fact. And other times they just get shelled immediately and they have to come out of the game. And it's mystical, I'm sure, which is which. And it's funny because it seems that that is true for 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 curveballs as well. Mm-hmm. And fastball velocity does have some variance. So a, a 95 mile per hour fastball pitcher, on average, might be uh, 97 some days and a 93 some days. Seems bizarre. That kind of variance is enormous. So, so Adi, I think this is a huge observation and a huge contribution, and we got to you got to get it out there, man. We got to talk well, about it. Actually, this. to be truthful, let me, let me I suggest it's probably more than just baseball pitchers. You can just observe baseball pitchers' performance in much finer granularity than almost any other position in sports, and I suspect it's a more general thing. Now, now maybe there's something fine about you know pitchers because there's the fine motor. In, and, and it's such a pr- precise action that they're doing. So that yeah, all I mean, helps. It golf, I would expect golf has the same level of precision for yeah. sure. And yeah. so I suspect you'd see the same kind of, but, but but what I love about it is people don't think about people this way. We put people in the categories, we type them and we underestimate variance. This is one of the main things we do as human beings. We underestimate variance. And you're talking about within person variance. I would not have within person variance. I have good people and bad people. Come on, don't tell me about this within person and, variance. And when we see that variance, we have to kind of connect it therefore to a narrative that explains That's right. We're gonna tell a story. Just it being variance. But let me just finish it up because it, if it's true, and I believe it is, it, le- it leads to an open question, um, which is can you detect early? If you got the bad version or the good yeah, version, right? And in right. baseball, you could pull the pitcher if they're if you're getting the bad form. And typically, they don't do that. They say the the opening round of bad luck. That's how they view it. And they'll be better the second or third inning. Let's keep going. And I have to tell you, I'm gonna I'm, it's gonna warm Shane's heart, but agonize mine. But there was a playoff, a very important playoff game against the Red Sox a couple of years back, where the Yankees rolled out their ace pitcher Louis Severino. And oh, he just got one. shelled. Weren't you at that of, game? Was, I was at that game back here. And instead of pulling the guy after the first inning, they let him go into the third where he, he essentially let the game get out of reach. And although the Yankees tried to pull it back, it got or, 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 I mean, we can go farther back in time with Kevin Brown in game seven of the, the mm-hmm. 2004 series. Same, same type of thing. I mean, it was clear within an inning that he did not have it, but they kept it until it was out of, uh, kind of out of range. So this is one of the great decision moments in sports, this decision on whether to leave the pitcher in or pull him. And last time I went to a major league game, you know, now I'm just a modeler geek and I start thinking about these things kind of immediately. Who's the, who is the Dervish? Dervish was pitching. You Darvish. You Darvish? You Darvish. And uh, he, he, he got hit pretty hard in the, in the, early in the game, but then they kept him in and he just had great stuff. And I, I remember texting you guys, Darvish has 14 Ks or something through, you know, whatever, six innings. And he ended up having a great game, I think, but, but they stayed with him. And I was fascinated by the fact that they stayed with him. And I wondered to what, and this was the Cubs, which is a fancy organization analytically. I wondered to what extent they had support systems to model these things. Mm-hmm. I think mostly they don't, but the kinds of question you're asking is utterly tractable. And presumably you could build such a thing, especially with the granularity that we observe pitchers these days. You ought to be able to say something. It's such an interesting question, Adi. I think it's the frontier for analytics commu- groups at baseball teams that have many 
many employees who can handle all the basic tasks that they need on a daily basis. That's the next modeling frontier. Can you take all the data that's coming in, the Hawkeye, the track man, the video, the, the, just the balls and strikes, the outcome data, can you make an, a rolling assessment of what, where you're, what picture you have on that day and how quickly can you, you decide you're gonna yank that picture? It's just, it's, the, it's, 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 it's a frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to see it in place, particularly so many teams typically have one or two good starters um, that you do let them let them pitch because whatever they are, they, even in their bad state, they're typically better than the, the right. follow. Right. But yeah, I want to see all those. I want to see all those distributions together and how much overlap there is and how much distinction there is. That's we, there's some there's some stuff you can do with this research that would be that would be illustrative, I believe. Right. It, it's it's a, it needs to be pushed, and I'm going to probably have to lean on some of my Bayesian hierarchical modeling community to uh, to because this is the machinery you need to do it right. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that stuff as it progresses. Good fun. Now that's the kind of preseason baseball talk I'm ready for, fellas. That's the kind Bayesian random effects i don't need to hear the odds on uh, the padres this year i need to hear about Adi's random effects <laughs> all right guys that has been the third quarter of Wortman. but we still have a quarter to go we have our interview segment coming up we're going to talk more baseball with a senior writer from the athletic comedy central radio sirius xm 95 has the biggest names in comedy and specials all day long let's get straight into it late night it's the daily show with trevor Noah. i couldn't have said it better myself I mean, what is a journalist anymore? And the opposition with Jordan Klepper. It's where opinions, policies, and realities are born. I represent the outsider, the underdogs, like the billionaire TV star president. Comedy Central Radio on Sirius XM 95. Or listen on the Sirius XM app. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Our interview segment, traditionally... Kate Massey here hosting, joined by Adi Weiner, my colleague, and more importantly, we're joined by Brittany Giroli. Brittany is National MLB Senior Writer for The Athletic. She spent a couple of years covering the Nationals beat. Prior to that, she's with MLB.com. She had a number of accolades while doing this kind of work, and we're delighted to have a chance to talk a little baseball. Brett, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. How does a national MLB senior writer spend opening day eve? What are you up to today? (laughs) Well, technically tomorrow, I guess, is opening day eve for me because I'm going to the Nationals Mets Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom. Um, So just sleeping as much as I can and trying to not get super stressed out because it it is certainly a marathon baseball and not a sprint. That's true. Of all the sports, they're, they're setting you up for the long haul. What 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 is on your mind as you go into the as you go into opening day? What are you excited about? What stories are you paying attention to? Just what's top of mind for you? Um, there's a lot of exciting things. I think first and foremost, just as I mentioned, seeing the Mets and the Nationals on Thursday, uh, will Francisco Lindor be locked up long term? Um, they've made it very clear that there is a opening day deadline, so I think the next 48 hours or so are going to be fascinating yeah. to watch. Um, certainly the Mets in general, new ownership, um, seems like trying to build a new culture. And then people forget with the Nationals, guys, they've never 
celebrated their 2019 World Series championship with their fans. So they're going to do something on Thursday as well. And it seems like 2019 was so long ago. Uh, it'll just be really nice to be in D.C. and be around fans again. Do you know how many fans are actually coming to the Nationals game? I think they're only allowed, I want to say 5,000. They're one of the lower ends. Um, certain stadiums are, are you know, 20% capacity. The Rangers, I believe, are really high. Uh, but the Nationals, I think, are the smallest. And Baltimore is up there as well. But the Nationals approved. D.C. has been very strict throughout this process. The smallest crowd in MLB. And, and where does your what are the COVID limitations on your ability to talk to people? So I went personally. I went to a Mets Nationals game down in Port Port St. Lucie uh, last week, and uh, none of not, my Nationalist contact couldn't talk to me in person. And my Mets contact was able to sit about uh, twelve feet away, no closer. What can you do as a as a reporter? Um, almost nothing. Everything is over Zoom. Uh, we'll be in the press box distanced, but um, it's not the same. We're in, it's kind of like real life, right? We're inching closer, but we're not normal yet. You can't come to the, um, to the clubhouse. That's not, not, not allowed yet. Nothing. Yeah, we can't even. Um, it's interesting when I was, I was at spring training, I was at Florida and Arizona, and it's similar to what you had said. It just depends on the team. Some teams will let me really close outside to players if we're both masked up. Some teams won't even let you watch a spring training practice from 100 yards away. So wildly different depending on the organization, depending on the setup. Um, yeah, it, it, it's definitely weird. Rick, what's the, what's the talk among baseball folks about the prospects for that changing over the season? Do people, are people optimistic or is it just completely unknown and people aren't speculating much? No, I think people are optimistic, especially because it seems like even over the last few weeks, there's been some optimism. So I think by May, we'll have a better sense of if we can get to normal at all before the All-Star break. Mm -hmm. So, so hi, Brittany, I want to ask you a little bit about Lindor. And actually, you wrote an article recently talking about almost the democratization of data. And all these teams are have these analysts doing using data. How does it get out there? But I want to put that in the context of Lindor. So, in the past, it always seemed that there was this huge variance in what, what a, a player could get because there was always a team willing to overpay. And that sort of drove the free agent market almost to stratospheric rec levels. And as you mentioned, you know, the Mets seem like they're ready to pay. I mean, Steve Cohen has mm -hmm. his, his uh, pocketbook open and, 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 and is going to be using it. But what do you think Lindor should be getting? Should be, should, could, he's aiming for 320 over 10 years. That seems just bizarrely high to me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he's actually aiming, the Mets offered 325 over 10. He's aiming for 385 over 12. That, that's which, right. 85. Wow. Yes, which to me is just, as you mentioned, like bizarre. Um, it's also $100 million the Mets offer, um, more than what Cleveland offered. So I think, you know, with Lindor, certainly you want to get what you're worth, but there reaches a point here where is he better than Mookie Betts? Is he more valuable than Mookie Betts? I, I don't think so. I think if you're the Mets, you maybe go a little bit over that 325 to make him feel like you negotiated, but not much because at the end of the day, a 12-year deal will just end up being an albatross, I fear, for the Mets, even if they have the money. Um, it, it would really be prohibitive in terms of how else they can spend it and who they can sign around him. And I, I also am perplexed by the idea that a 12-year contract is in the interest of any team that's informed by analytics. 
I mean, he's 27 years old. We know that things just drop precipitously now in baseball, you know, early 30s. Are you really expecting to get value out of 10 years? Right. Yes. And and Fernando Tatis, okay, different ordeal, right? He's a lot younger than Francisco Lindor. So certainly Mm -hmm. there there are exceptions where I think you're okay with that. But it's interesting you bring up the data because the Mets analytics has very quietly here transformed and added a lot more numbers over the last few years. And I think maybe three, four years ago, we would have said they're behind the curve or certainly they're in the bottom portion. And really talking to people in the game, there's been a lot of really positive movement. The, the Mets are really putting money into the data and into the R&D. And I think it's starting to show up. And that's a, another reason, in my opinion, why they have that line in the sand. And they're like, listen, we like you, but we're not going to be crazy. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about this. This is exactly what I was going to ask you when you brought up Cohen and the ownership change. How should I, as a as a as kind of a lay a lay baseball fan, how should I think about the new ownership relative to other clubs? I I think as an outsider, I think of them along two dimensions: one, how much money they spend, and the other, how analytics savvy or analytics forward they are. Where would you? I know we were kind of still figuring these guys out, but where do you think they're going to land on on, on those two dimensions? Well, I think. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think, first off, every fan should want their ownership to have the biggest payroll in baseball. I think the the weird thing is it seems like fans nowadays are like, oh, we can't spend that. We can't afford that. There's almost that brainwashing that comes with the uh, the teams and, and their message a little bit. And if you're a fan, you should want your, your club to spend money and be mm-hmm. at the top every year in money spent because it's not your money and you want to win and you want your team to win. Um, I, I think with Cohen, what's interesting is he doesn't seem early on like he's going to be a meddler. It seems like he was content to hire Sandy Alderson as president and let Sandy manage the business and the baseball side. And he's a Mets fan, Steve Cohen, who just wants to win. And I think he's got the deep pockets. He's got the enthusiasm. And, you know, as I reported yesterday with the athletic, they're going to, deep dive and they hired a law firm to look into the culture. So I think he wants to do all the right things here. And like you said, it's early, so we're not really sure, but I I do think it's been promising here early on in a a very small sample size. I mean, I don't think we pay enough attention to ownership changes in professional sports. I, I think the typical fan may not appreciate how profoundly influential they are. And some fans get saddled with bad owners. And they have a lifetime. They can't get out of the loyalties they were born into. I'm thinking about like <laughs> Redskins fans and Knicks fans. I just feel sorry for these people. So I'm I'm happy for Mets fans because there's potential here for strong ownership, and it, and it should be a real big story, I would think, in the league. Adi. Yeah, I also think uh, there's it happens in little ways. Not only are the Mets hiring, and they hired an analytics staff. They at least doubled. I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are, but they 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 were posting, and and a number of my students applied for some jobs, and 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 others tried to get in on the interview circuit. They're they're definitely hired. They hired they they grabbed a analyst from the Dodgers. It's always a good move to steal from a world champion. Um, one of their staff who's now working in the analytics. But here's just one tidbit, which I think is kind of curious. While I was down in Port St. Lucie, um, they've been they've installed the Hawkeye system at the minor league stadiums as well as the major league stadiums, but they have kept the Mets have kept the track man, which was the old technology. Okay. So hold on. you have to update us on what Hawkeye does above and beyond track man. Okay, so TrackMan is uh, is the traditional system or traditional. They've been using it for a while. And Hawkman was purchased. Uh, they trashed their, they, they tore up their contract or they expired with, with TrackMan. I don't know the details. And now they use Hawkeye. Hawkeye, remember from tennis? 
You know, the, the, you've seen the pictures uh, of the ball and on the line with it. It's very, so, uh, so uh, Hawkeye is just much more, more, many more cameras and it's, and it can track the flight of the ball. It's, it's supposed to be more accurate, mm-hmm. but the Mets just decided to keep TrackMan in all their parks. Just, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. More data is better than less data. Oh, you're saying they put it in, but they kept both. Well, it was there from before. It was, it's been there. They didn't decide to uninstall it and they kept their contract with track. They just decided to have two sets of data. Oh, interesting. All right. And that's, that isn't, that's, I mean, look, I think basically more tools right now is good. We're still trying to learn these things. In fact, one of the reasons we want to talk to you, Britt, was to talk about this article you wrote recently for the athletic on franchises ability to develop velocity. So velocity has become such a big deal in baseball and, 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 and kind of simultaneously, player development has become a bigger deal. You know, I, I think about it as baseball. Baseball was kind of out front in analytics, and then other sports caught up. And then baseball jumped out front again because they started using analytics in player development in ways that really, really pushed the frontier. And so we loved seeing this article you guys wrote on, on trying to figure out, are some clubs better than others at developing velocity? Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so... First of all, when you tackle a project like this, it's obviously you try to be, it's cumbersome. You try to be as all encompassing as you can in terms of, you know, the, the certain survivor bias and the fact that clubs could have traded guys away that had developed this velocity within their organization and who gets credit at the next organization. Um, so there's a lot of things you can quibble with. But I think a few important things emerged here. Um, one, as you guys mentioned, velocity is king. But I think teams more and more are leaning on the fact that they can teach velocity. They can add velocity. I think if you were to ask farm directors and um, front offices around the sport what they would rather draft, it's not the guy who throws 100. It's the guy with the stuff or the guy with the command because they feel like they can with all this advanced data, as you mentioned, with all the, the gas camps and all the analytics that go into it, they can, they feel like, add the miles per hour. Um, the, Bre- the Brewers kind of emerged as a, a club that was really good at adding velocity. And certainly when you look at the recent success that Milwaukee has had, especially in finding like guys in independent ball and really converting them, they were excellent. Cleveland is another team that I think when you look at the pipeline and what they're able to do on a relatively small budget and develop that pitching, they're excellent at it as well. Um, you know, the Yankees are a team who, really revamped and rehauled a lot of that stuff as of late. And we looked at like the last three years. So certainly there's regime changes in organizations, but the Orioles are another team that I feel like are becoming more on the up and up, certainly under Mike Elias, they've developed a really good system. So there's some really interesting things to look at. Um, The teams at the bottom to me also spoke to me. They were the quote unquote old school teams. Um, You know, the White Sox who are one of the more old school teams the Nationals kind of finished in that bottom half as well. They're one of the more old school teams as well. So it's really interesting to look at that and take it with a grain of salt and say, what can we learn from this? What does this prove? Um, and there was a lot of, of organizations who I didn't really expect uh, to be in that top half that really were. So I was fascinated by it. I think Everyone kind of knows the Astros are, are really good at that kind of thing, but nobody really was say, oh, the Orioles, they've got to be in the top. And certainly they're doing some really important work. I, I'll just point out, I remember when, when Gasman 
was thrown nearly a hundred about three or four years ago. And I said to myself, where the hell did this guy come from? He was playing with the Orioles and, and uh, the li line on it is there were developing power among their, among their pitchers in the minors. I guess that's what you you saw evidence of. Right. And you know, what's unfortunate with the Orioles is you look around and they've got three opening day starters this year have come from Baltimore that aren't on Baltimore. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, the last regime before Elias was really slow to, adapt to the analytics and to the data but certainly the numbers are there the raw talent is there and I think it's it's really interesting to look at what teams I think you mentioned the player development factor um, that is the next wave everyone has the same data everyone has the track bands everyone has all that fancy equipment now but the ones who are able to use that data and really get through to the players are going to be the teams that succeed. That is the next money ball. That is the next wave. All right. Well, my question is uh, last week um, I had the, uh, you know, the pleasure of interviewing Jared Diamond. He wrote um, the swing Kings. And this is uh, uh, talking about the other side of the batter pitcher uh, standoff. There's been great development on the pitching side, but the home runs are going through the roof. And that's technology too. Are you going to follow up? We've been doing research on which teams are doing the techno into the batting side, such as there is. I mean, is there any? Well, the problem with that, and MLB just really threw a wrench in everyone's research, is the ball is different this year. Um, it is now going to be deadened. It's a little bit heavier. It's a little bit squishier around the seams. I was able to feel it when I went down to Florida a few weeks ago. And I think as a result, you're going to see more balls die on the warning track. So mm -hmm. if you were to... If you were to do a three-year study, I think you have to kind of either decide you're going to start with this year or not include this year because you're dealing with a different instrument. You're dealing with a different ball, and a lot of players think it's going to widely affect the game this year. Okay, hold on. This, I, maybe I was supposed to know that, but I didn't know that. That's astounding to me. What, can we talk about the policy there? Like, where, where, does, the, where does that decision come from? Yeah, so basically, um, they want to Major League Baseball, and, and as we know, they hired Theo Epstein to be this consultant and to help fix the game. They want to put more balls in play, right? They've agreed that more balls in play, less dead time is a good thing. And part of that is this new baseball that they feel like is going to result in, like I said, about a 5% decrease in home runs. Now, these are just estimates. We're going to not be able to really see until we have this whole season. Um, they think that there's going to be more movement on pitchers because of that squishy part by the seams. Uh, that's what I was told by a couple guys as well. So you're going to see a lot of guys with breaking stuff, that movement be even nastier. But I think as a result of the reduction in fly balls and the reduction in home runs, you're going to see a lot more guys playing for contact because they can't just send the ball out of the ballpark and even the score. So I think it's going to have a huge impact on the game. This is something that baseball is also tinkering with, you know, using that, um, that baseball to get rid of pine tar, to have a stickier substance, to have a one-size-fits-all approach there. There's a lot of tinkering going on with the game, which makes it tough for people like me and you guys to do any kind of data. Yeah, well, you're, killing, you're killing Adi from multiple perspectives. One, he likes his numbers, and two – he likes the game the way it was played in the 50s. I do, I do. I like the cheat. That's right. I like the game. It was cheating like when my pappy was at watching, right? The, the, I mean, this is new, this idea that they're going to try to spot um, using data analysis, particularly as frequent spin rates, uh, pitchers using pine tar, other stack-tacking substances that they use to get a better grip. I actually think that their approach is, is, is not going to work. And, 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 uh, and, yeah, I disagree with it from, from – 
things should always be the same perspective. But there's so many ways to defeat that kind of monitoring just by, and apparently, I mean, Trevor Bauer, I think, said they're all using it. They've always been using it. How are you going to stop it by looking at people adding it when they're already doing it? <laughs> yeah, right. So that's the right. Point. But my, my view is, um, uh, particularly after talking to, to Jared Diamond about the Swing Kings, and although is that the approach, the batter approach has been the bigger factor to increasing home run rather than the ball, which has gotten definitely lower air resistance over the last three or four years, which has led to more more um, more velocity, more well, less air resistance, not more velocity, but more more distance, and and that's what 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 I wanted to ask you is the idea of developing a home run approach is something that you can train, or at least uh, allegedly can train can train, so you can then wonder uh, if you look at say people in college or in the minors in high school, it's not as 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 um, precise, of course, as velocity. But if you look at velocity off the bat, and that's not affected by the the um, the aerodynamics of the ball, just velocity off the bat, you should be able to track increases in velocity over time, just the way you can track track increase in velocity for pitchers if they're actually using this techniques which are developed which develop more power. Um, and that's where I think that, that's what I'd be really curious to know what happens in the future. And um, how can we measure it? Or in, in, in your position as a, you know, as a writer and, and a beat writer and following the teams, is there any talk? I mean, I haven't gotten a whiff of it. And maybe, you know, you're much closer. Is there any talk that they're doing this? Are they trying to train their hitters to hit more home runs or, or anything of this kind? I haven't heard that, but obviously I think we can all agree there's an obsession now with exit velocity. It's, it's in every game, right? We hear, oh, here was the exit velocity off the bat of the home run. You can look up the exit velocity of any guy. I think when you look at evaluating prospects, if they're not hitting the ball hard, yes, they could be struggling, but if they're not hitting the ball hard, I think people are worried. Um, it's, it's one of the first things that you talk to developmental people and they're like, well, if the exit velocity is declining on a player, it's never good. So I think, I think there is some credence to what you are saying um, in terms of kind of studying that and studying that approach. I do wonder, because this is just the beginning of a revolution here in terms of the baseball. This is just the beginning, getting rid of the shifts, right, or, or trying to eliminate how the shifts are played. I think the whole goal is to get away from that home run approach, is to get back to the, the gaps and the line drives and the guys who put the ball in play, that is where we're going. And so I'm curious if teams are wary of developing all these home run guys only to find out that this game is moving away from the home runs. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what ends up happening there and maybe fast forwarding five, 10 years. And does the league actually cut down on the dead time? Does the time between pitches, which I've heard a lot of pitchers need for recovery because we're now in a high velocity, you know, high recovery phase. They need the 40 seconds between pitches, the minute between pitches in the eighth inning because they're throwing 100 miles an hour. Um, does shortening that make velos go down? And in turn, does that make the, the game change? So I think there's a lot of rules here that are coming that aren't here yet. And I wonder how that impacts what you are teaching these 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds uh, that are in your system that aren't going to be a factor for another few years? Super interesting question. I'm, I'm curious, as, as quickly as they changed swings, I wonder if they could change them back, you know, if they've kind of learned how to do this kind of thing. Yeah. 
technology. I know we have to let you go, but real quickly, what's the sense around the league about these changes? Are people glad that Theo Epstein has been hired in this capacity and the league is willing to play ball and they, and they want to see these changes? Or are they like, hey, man, you're messing with our game. We just need a fixed set of rules. Yeah, I think you're always going to get two camps with this, right? You're going to get, you know, pitchers are not happy every time you mess with the ball. There's going to be certainly people that are upset when you're when you're dealing with the, the shifts and things to that nature because it really favored the smart, defensive-minded teams who were placing their players in the best spot to make a play, to make an out, regardless of where that was. So you're always going to have some upset people on one hand. On the other hand, I do think the dead, the dead time in these games is really slowing things down. I mean, four-hour playoff games, 90 seconds between pitches, these are things that I believe personally, selfishly, need to go away. I do think you need more action if you're going to continue to market this game to the next generation who just do not have the time span to be sitting there for four plus hours watching a baseball game. So I think some of these changes are necessary. I think getting Theo Epstein, uh, a guy widely credited for his success in multiple organizations, and rightfully so, I think that buys the league a little street cred. You know, you would, as a player, you're going to listen a little bit more to something Theo says over Rob Manfred. Um, I just think that's the way it is. So, um, you know, like it or not, these changes are coming. And I can only hope, guys, like like you said, I'm a purist in some fashion. I, I wouldn't mind the game going back a little bit to where it was. I think we have gotten a little too obsessed with the home runs and the strikeouts and the time between pitches. I would like some of the old game to come back. I would like to see a two-hour pitcher's duel once in a while. And I, I don't know if we can get back there, but I, I would certainly love to dream that that is a possibility. That's fun, Britt. Well, we wish you the best with uh, that and many other storylines you'll be keeping an eye on as the 2021 season gets underway. Appreciate your taking time to discuss it with us today. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Britt Giroli, National MLB Senior Writer for The Athletic. Great person to follow on all matters baseball as well. Some super interesting analytics-based stuff in the last couple of weeks. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do this every week for Audie Weiner, for Eric Bradlow, for Shane Jensen. This has been Kate Massey. Many thanks to the boss man, Matty Dats, for the associate boss man, Deion Simpkins, and for you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.